Bank of Clark County is making it easy to give to local charities. We're featuring a different one at each of our Bank of Clark County locations. To find out how you can support their good work, visit our website at www.bankofclark.bank or follow us on our social media channels and the hashtag GiveWithBOCC. Bank of Clark County. Member FDIC. Strange days indeed for the United Methodist Church. This is episode 92 of En Route. This is the podcast that is at the intersection of church and Maine. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. I hope that you're enjoying the spring. Uh, spring has actually come to Minnesota after a few hot days and um, stormy nights. And um, we've actually now kind of come to a median where it's just right, um, right temperature. So I hope that you too, as I said, are enjoying your spring. Well, on May 1st, a new denomination launched. The Global Methodist Church had their beginning, official beginning, on May 1st of this year. Uh, It is considered to be splitting off from the United Methodist Church. This split, in some ways, has been years in the making, if not decades. This is the result of many, many years of dealing with the issue of homosexuality. The United Methodist Church is really the last of the mainline denominations that still has yet to um, approve of allowing especially um, same-sex marriages and then also um, LGBT people to become uh, clergy. Now, this issue came to a head in early 2019. There was a special general conference that was held in St. Louis, and a very conservative measure passed, one that um, was definitely not helpful to LGBTQ United Methodists. Now, the next year was supposed to be a regularly scheduled general conference, and these take place every four years, Um, And that general conference was to take place in 2020 in Minneapolis. Well, of course, COVID canceled the 2020 event, and then it was rescheduled to 2021. And then that meeting was also rescheduled. Conservatives had hoped that a rescheduled event in 2022 in Minneapolis could have been a place where people, they could start talking about how to deal with church property, um, allowing them, allowing people in the Global Methodist Church to take property with them as they left. But 
leaders in the United Methodist Church decided this spring to cancel the event again, this time waiting to meet during the next regular meeting, which takes place in 2024. This frustrated conservatives, and they decided to go ahead and move without the United Methodist Church implementing some kind of process that allowed congregations to leave. I wanted to talk to someone about what has been going on in the United Methodist Church, especially very recently, and I wanted to get it from the standpoint of a pastor in a parish. And so I decided to talk to uh, the Reverend Joe Tognetti. Uh, Joe is the pastor of First United Methodist Church in Real City, Texas, which is on the border. And he will soon be the pastor of St. Mark United Methodist in McAllen, Texas. I'm hoping that this will help people to get uh, an understanding of, of what is going on in United Methodist Church, not necessarily from someone who is a bishop or a high official in the in the UMC or in the um, soon to, um, Global Methodist Church, but from a pastor's viewpoint. And so I hope that this can give people that um, perspective and um, just also to figure out where is United Methodist Church heading. So let's listen to my interview with Joe Tognetti. Good to have you back here. We had you here a few months ago um, to talk about COVID, and so I'm glad to have you to talk about uh, kind of the everything we would want to know about the United Methodist Church. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. I, I very much appreciate um, the privilege of being on here, and I know the podcast has been growing steadily since, and so I'm excited to, to be part of it. Well, thank you. So I guess the first thing I would want to ask is kind of what is the um, kind of the background of where the uh, United Methodist Church is right now. Um, if someone is trying to f figure out what the UMC is all about, um, what would you tell them has been kind of the major issue over the last few years? Yeah. So, uh, well, first off, and, and I don't know, this might already be part of the, the introduction, but um, I'm, I'm the pastor at First United Methodist Church in Rio Grande City. Starting June 26th, I'll be the pastor at St. Mark United Methodist Church in McAllen, both of them in South Texas near the, the border, near the Rio Grande Valley. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I wanted to take a step back, some of your viewers. I'm going to do my best to keep this brief. You know, some of your viewers may not know much about the United Methodist Church at all. So I want to take a step back. United Methodist Church is the largest of what uh, is typically labeled mainline, quote-unquote, denominations. Uh, it's the largest in the United States. Um, it's an international denomination, though, so it has about 6 to 7 million in the United States, but close to 12 million uh, in not just the United States, but Africa predominantly, but also the Philippines 
and parts of Europe and Eurasia, um, Europe and Eurasia. And so, um, you know, just general background history started as a, an 18th century renewal movement within the Church of England um, by John Wesley. Uh, John Wesley was an Anglican priest. And um, really, you know, there's a lot to say about how, you know, some of it was very similar to what we consider the Great Awakening in the United States. So he primarily was in England, uh, but he did a lot of outdoor field preaching, et cetera, et cetera. But what was distinctive was John Wesley organized people into what we would today call like small groups, discipleship groups, et cetera. These, uh, these uh, class meetings and band meetings where there was mutual support and accountability and prayer. And, and that really kept people going in terms of their faith walk with Jesus. Not only did they hear his sermon, but then uh, they would keep going. And so some marks of that early Methodist uh, tradition, some emphasis besides the small groups, was God the, the completeness of God's grace. God's grace coming even before we are aware of it, what the big churchy word, provenient grace, God's, you know, God's grace in the moment that we accept the grace God, that God offers us through uh, Jesus' death and resurrection, that justifying grace where we are free from the power of sin, and then sanctifying grace. That was a big emphasis. That was one of the reasons for the small group, this idea that we keep on going on, in the words of John Wesley, going on to perfection. We keep on going on to, to seek uh, holiness and, and to be more like Jesus in this life. Also, other uh, emphases included, it was Armenian in theology, basically emphasizing God giving us free will in contrast to Calvinism or predestination. So it was an Armenian theology, free will. It was ecumenical. Uh, John Wesley was always Anglican, but he never uh, turned people away from the movement because of uh, denomination affiliation. He was even for his day, he was friendly to Catholics. There was some kind of antagonism there, but but for his day, he was even fairly friendly to Catholics. So an ecumenism, uh, you know, uh, pre, you know, and then also social concerns. John Wesley was very much against slavery, although today we would certainly consider him racist or racially insensitive at least, but he was against slavery. Uh, he was against child labor. Uh, his movement would go on to be very a vocal against um, uh, alcohol use and uh, domestic violence, and the two kind of going hand in hand, seeing those two as connected. So that's kind of where, uh, you know, the background on that. Um, I think before we get into what's dividing the church today, though, I wanted to, to let viewers know that like a lot of Protestant denominations, the United Methodist Church has split and combined and, and gone through all of that throughout its history. And that uh, it, throughout the 19th century, so the United Methodist, sorry, to back up, the United Methodist Church became independent in the U.S. in 1784 after Americans won the Revolutionary War. Wesley felt, even though Wesley was in England, he felt like it wasn't, th there couldn't be a connection uh, it, with America being independent. So the Methodist Church became what was called the Methodist Episcopal Church at the time, became independent in 1784. But throughout the 19th century, there were splits. There were splits because of racism. Even in the North, where there wasn't slavery, 
You see the African Methodist Episcopal Church and the African Methodist Episcopal Church Zion are the, the fruit of that. Um, that, that you know, African-Americans who were either previously enslaved or descendants of slaves, um, in some cases, possibly slaves, like, look, the Methodists aren't treating us right, so we're going to make our own church. You also had concerns, you know, with, with Wesley and with the Methodist movement in general, there was always a tension between a, a, what I think is a holy tension between the Anglican high church, um, core doctrine, even maybe even elitism and traditionalism, but also paired with pietism, grassroots efforts to strive to be holy and, and to not be constrained by the formalism. So the, those two kind of Anglicanism and pietism has always been both part of the United Methodist tradition but throughout the 19th century, there were a lot of people who felt like the Methodist Church went to Anglican. And so there were there were folks who left because they felt like the Methodist Church was too classist. Uh, the poly, the, we have bishops. Folks didn't like that. There were folks who didn't think we emphasized holiness enough. Um, even though Phoebe Palmer herself didn't leave, she became the instigator of what was called the holiness movement. Today, we see that in the Free Methodist Church, the Nazarene Church, the Wesleyan Church. There was apocalypticism, also arising Seventh-day Adventist, came out of the Methodist movement. So a lot of different splinter groups. Like, this is not a new thing for Methodism. In 1844, we did split over slavery. Like, a lot of um, church traditions in the U.S., uh, the, the precipitating factor was that a bishop owned slaves and the Northern Church did not consider that acceptable. And so North and South split in 1844. They reunified in 1939. However, formal segregation and racism was institutionalized in that the Black churches were all clustered together in what is called the Central Conference what was called the, the, the Central Conference. And um, that didn't get corrected until 1968. When, um, and in 1968, that is what we today consider the United Methodist Church. Uh, we merged with another pietist, a church from the pietist tradition. It's interesting that a lot of pietists had left, but in 1968, we felt the need to bring some of that back in. So we merged with the Evangelical United Brethren, which were German pietist groups. And so um, the last thing I wanted to say about that is that, and th this is all background before we get to kind of some of the stuff that's today, is that unlike a lot of other churches, we didn't split over two issues that a lot of other churches did. We didn't split over women's ordination. We've been ordaining women since before the United Methodist Church was a church in 68. Wesley himself licensed a woman preacher in 1761. And, and different elements of the Wesleyan movement had licensed or ordained preachers in the 19th century. We didn't formally start that until 1956. But that, you know, we didn't split over that, though. A lot of other churches did. I know Presbyterians did. Lutherans did. We didn't. Uh, the other thing is we didn't split over divorce and remarriage. Uh, you know, we, we, like a lot of church traditions, we were fairly strict in that regard. 
um, either prohibited it completely or very narrow circumstance. But then in the 50s, basically said, you know what, there, there are instances where um, a marriage experiences a spiritual death. And so, uh, and there wasn't a split over that. And so I think, I, I think a lot of these other church traditions that had these splits, we hadn't experienced, you know, we've experienced splits before, but it's been a lot longer. And I think that's what hurts in the United Methodist Church today is that is that we kind of, I think there was a little bit of a pride that we could stay united in ways that others couldn't. Um, and, and that's what's, I think, hurting emotionally for a lot of us now is that, is that it doesn't appear, it, it's not going to happen this time. Um, so before I, you know, you had asked about the current, but before I get to that, any questions, any thoughts, responses to what I just said about background, um, anything else you wanted to know? Nope, I think you have done a really good job in, in that background. So okay. I'll go into the what's the main topic now. Okay, so to start with, I mean, the, the presenting issue is LGBTQ equality. And in particular, gay marriage and whether to ordain um, pastors who are in gay relationships. That's the presenting issue. And right now, the status quo is that the answer is no. I did want to say, though, that, that I think there have been some, that's the presenting issue. I think there have been other issues related to biblical interpretation and social and political concerns that underlie that issue. In particular, with biblical interpretation, so in, in the 60s, when, you know, the United Methodist Church formed, um, we, we, we formally introduced, as part of what we called our theological method, what some call the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Wesley himself never expressed this explicitly. Um, it's a way of understanding how we interpret the Bible. And so the way it goes like this. Our doctrine says that the Bible is the rule and guide for faith and morals. Uh, that's that's what in our doctrinal statements, the rule and guide for faith and morals. But, you know, the, the way that in Wesley's own time, the way that Anglicans understood biblical interpretation was that you interpreted the Bible through tradition and reason. And then as a theologian called Ab Albert Outler uh, 20th century theologian understood it, is that Wesley, again, Wesley never expressed this explicitly, but he saw in Wesley that there was a fourth component called experience, both experience in terms of real world, just day-to-day -day experience, but also experience of the Holy Spirit and how that impacts our biblical interpretation. So what, what got hazy, though, what got controversial is that that Wesleyan quadrilateral wasn't well-defined mm. for much of the 70s and 80s. And so you had a lot of theologians and, and theologians, professors, even a bishop or two, who were very, um, you know, some would call liberal, some would call even heretical, some would call just a little loose in terms of, oh, these four things, you just kind of pick and choose, right? Like, something you could draw on experience, and yeah, that's how you learn that. You can draw on reason, yeah, that's how you learn that. You draw a tradition, and, and yeah, yeah, the Bible's nice, you know? So, so you did have, in the 70s through the 90s, you had 
a, a number of Methodist theologians and bishops, even one or two bishops, not most, but one or two bishops, who explicitly even rejected things like Jesus's bodily resurrection. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, and so, um, I think our, our conservative brothers and sisters saw some of the social liberalism as being accompanied by theological liberalism to that extreme. Now, our discipline has since clarified, since I believe the late 80s, the Wesleyan quadrilateral, that scripture is always the core. It is always the rule and guide that we interpret scripture through the, through the lens of our church tradition, through our reason, through our experience, daily experience and experience of the Holy Spirit. But the scripture is still, uh, you know, the primary rule and guide for faith and life. I think the other thing that has kind of rocked the boat, other than LGBTQ concerns directly, is the disconnect between our denominational elites, our professors, even many of our master's educated pastors, um, and the social political views when it comes to things like, um, you know, racism and how to combat racism, when it comes to things, uh, gosh, I've, I've got my, uh, yeah, uh, when it comes to Im- things like immigration, when it comes to public spending, government spending, and, and, and what kinds of things uh, the Christians should be advocating for, even war and peace, I would say that the, much like a lot of other mainline denominations, our, um, uh, our so-called elites are much more, you could say, inclusive or compassionate, or you could say just liberal or progressive, whatever you wanted to say it. Then I would say th- they are much more that way than the median, than the standard Methodist member. And so that just created a lot of tension, right? Um, understandably. And so the, the, the concerns over LGBTQ equality and inclusion and holiness and biblical interpretation, I think all of that compounds that. Um, so as far as, uh, you know, the, uh, our policy with regard to LGBTQ equality and inclusion Excuse me, I needed a drink of water. Nope, that's okay. Um, that starting in 1972, our book of discipline said that while all people are made in the image of God and, and are worthy of God's love and, and deserve to be a part of the church, um, it explicitly says that homosexual practice is incompatible with church teaching. That and 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 I'm aware that homosexual, homosexual and homosexuality as a phrase is not in vogue. I, I, all I did was literally quote our discipline. Mm-hmm. That's what it says. Um, and so, and then we have separate rules saying that that clergy can cannot preside over gay unions, and clergy are expected to be either celibate in singleness or married but heterosexual married. Uh, you know man, woman. Um, that has not changed. Like it just hasn't. Um, now, uh, a lot of the tension though, where where it's, yeah, I mentioned before that we're a global denomination. And so part of the reason we haven't changed 
even as much of the American church would probably be open, most of the American church would be open to allowing for gay clergy and uh, gay marriage. And even if someone, you know, I've talked to a lot of members, they might not be personally supportive of gay marriage or personally supportive of gay clergy. They're not going to leave the Methodist church over it, right? I, I would say that's the majority in the United States. However, again, we're an international body. And the vast majority of African Methodists, and I would say a high percentage, I don't know the numbers, but a high percentage of our Filipino brothers and sisters and our Eurasian brothers and sisters say no. And so that whenever we have these international, what we call general conference, the conservatives win. They win narrowly, but they win uh, because of that. And so, and yet, the majority of Methodists are about half, I'd say. A little over half of Methodists are in the United States. It's just not tenable in the United States. It is not enforced. It hasn't been enforced in certain parts of our church for a while. And, and I understand conservative frustration over that. I think conservatives are, you know, they're like, look, this is the rules. How is it not being enforced? And there are lots of complicated reasons based on our governing structure, why that's the case. Um, but there are regions of the United Methodist Church where it's just not enforced. And so we have gay clergy, we have clergy who celebrate gay marriage, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so we tried to settle this in 2019 with a special general conference. But once again, um, it, the same thing happened. The conservatives won the vote, but in the United States, it was made very clear based on the, 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 the delegates. So we, have, we were supposed to have a general conference in 2020. So we elected delegates to 2020 general conference. And it was very clear based on those votes that the American church would not accept uh, not having gay clergy and not having gay marriage. And so, um, now, there were supposed to be, in 2020, kind of plans for separation or how churches could leave. And that was actually going to take place here in Minneapolis. Yes, yes, it was supposed to take place <laughs> in Minneapolis. And because what, what the conservatives decided was that not only, not only would they lose most of the American church, but they decided that they wanted a, a, a slimmer polity. They wanted a different governing structure. They wanted a governing structure that still had bishops, but where churches, you know, right now bishops appoint clergy to different churches. They wanted a structure where churches did more to choose their own pastors. And so, and, and among other things, you know, again, I think a lot of that um, social political tension I think, I think there's some where people who are socially or politically more conservative are getting a little tired of feeling like the elites in the United Methodist Church aren't there, um, aren't with them. And so, um, as well as biblical interpretation, there's still some concern among conservatives, even though I think that a lot of the explicit heresy that we saw in the 70s to 90s just isn't nearly as prevalent as it used to be. Mm -hmm. I think conservatives are still worried about all that. And so 
but because of COVID, it got postponed. And it got postponed even again. Now we're not going to have it till 2024. And there's some controversy. Many conservatives feel like we could have had it if we wanted to. I don't want to impugn anyone's integrity. I think there were legitimate obstacles, not just with respect to vaccines, but also with respect to visas, visa backlogs. There were, there were legitimate obstacles to getting international delegates into the United States in a timely manner. Um, could we have had it before 2024? I, I don't know. Folks who have organized it said we couldn't. That's just kind of how, and so with that, then the conservatives got impatient and they've just gone ahead and started what they call the Global Methodist Church mm-hmm. and starting May 1st. And one of the things that did result from our 2019 gathering is that churches, you know, so to back up, right now, a, a congregation does not own its own property. The, the, the conference, which is the regional body, owns the property. Um, in 2019, it was passed that through 2023, churches could leave and they'd still have to pay something, but it was a lot less. It would be a much lower fee. Nowhere near. I mean, we're talking like a quarter or a tenth of the value of the property. Um, it's complicated. I don't want to get into all those details, but like churches could leave for much lower uh, price. Um, and through 2023. And so that's kind of what we're going to see happen. Um, that that start, And so the Global Methodist Church started May 1st. Churches that leave don't have to go to the Global Methodist Church, though. They can, go, they can either go independent, they can go to another denomination, all of that. Um, but that's kind of where we're at. And, mm-hmm. and uh, before I get into, you know, I wanted to discuss where I'm at in terms of, of, of why I'm choosing to stay United Methodist, but uh, I wanted to, to pause and see if you had any questions, thoughts, concerns, follow up, any of that. Well, I think one of the things that I w- was interested in is that um, there's also a question of not just congregations um, leaving, but entire annual conferences. And um, I just saw the news that passed this morning um, that the um, the court, the judicial court in the UMC said, you can't do that. Correct. Um, and so that seems to also be an issue. So what if you have a majority of people in a annual conference? Um, it seems like the temptation would be quite high to just say, we're just leaving. Um, and I don't you know. Will this resolve it, or or pro, or is this kind of like, you know, this is the law, but people will just say, screw it, we're just going to do this. Yeah. So one thing I want to clarify: internationally, our central conferences, which is the international version of not the annual conference, but so we have three levels in the U.S. We call it annual conference, jurisdictional conference, which is a regional body that encompasses many conferences. And then the general conference, the whole church. Internationally, they have annual conference. They have a central conference, which is a cluster of annual conferences in a given region. And then, of course, the general. So internationally, they can do that. They can go autonomous. 
there is a method for doing it. In the U.S., there is no current method. Now, there's a lot of ways this can go. The general conference that's been postponed in 2024, they could create a pathway for annual conferences to do that. Um, I wonder, though, that's a little bit of, of church Russian roulette, in my opinion, mm-hmm. for conservative congregations and conferences, because, like I said, that provision that allows churches to leave quite cheaply or relatively cheaply expires before 2024. It expires at the end of 2023. And so I don't know that annual conferences that where the majority of churches want to leave will be willing to wait that long because they don't, we don't know what general conference is going to decide. Um, so yeah, that's, also, and, and we've, there have been two or three annual conferences in the United States and there could end up being more that have expressed a willingness to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't, you know, my guess would be that perhaps they kind of negotiate a buyout collectively and, and we're going to have to reorganize our annual conferences anyway. And so in that shuffle, there could be some things that happen. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. But at the end of the day, I don't know. But you are right. It has just been determined that annual conferences cannot leave as a whole. The Our general conference, our, our legislative body of the church can give that authority, but they haven't yet. Okay. So, yeah. So I guess the other question that I would have is, do you think that this split will hurt or help the the United Methodists right now? Um, I, I think in the short term, it's just going to take up oxygen. I think in the short term, it's going to hurt. Um, I think that, and I think we've seen in most, in most mainline denominations, it has not been a benefit. Um, which doesn't even necessarily mean, and, and I don't even think, it doesn't necessarily mean that the conservative offshoot benefits a whole lot. Like, I'm not sure that the global Methodist church is going to be that big of a church at the end of the day. I wonder if a lot of these churches just decide they're going to go independent or they're going to go to a pre-existing you know, denomination or people just get fed up and, and leave their congregation. Um, I think in the short term, I think in the long term, you know, I, I think being a, having the largest denomination, the, the third largest denomination in the United States be a um, inclusive denomination could potentially help. I think having that visibility and people being aware of that could potentially help. It hasn't helped the other mainline denominations. Um, what I, what I, I, but my hope is that um, that the United Methodist Church would, in its regrouping, that we are able to reform a distinctive identity that isn't just hey we're an inclusive church because it's like well I don't need to go to church on Sunday to be LGBT inclusive, mm-hmm. right? So, so what is unique about the church? What is unique about um, 
about the United Methodist Church in particular. Uh, why would I get up and go on Sunday and, meet and worship and, and do all this stuff? You know, my hope is that the United Methodist Church can, can regroup and, and bring, still bring out the best of our tradition. Like I said, that combination of that Anglican and pietism tradition, I really still believe that we can do that. Um, and so it has the potential to help. Short term, I don't think it will. Well, you were going to talk about your own viewpoints. Yes, yeah, and and so that leads into kind of why I'm I'm staying United Methodist, and and it is that I think you know, and other mainline traditions share this, but I think the United Methodist Church best reflects, and even with the GMC splitting off, I think the United Methodist Church best reflects Wesley's original vision of being rooted in the, in the traditions of Christ's people, being rooted in the worship, kind of more, you know, some, some core traditions of worship, some core traditional teaching, you know, God became one of us through Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for our salvation and is with us in, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Like, God, you know, that, that core teaching, but also with pietism, and pietism not, you know, we think of piety as this, like, off-putting judgmentalism, but, but in the sense of being disciplined and accountable to one another in loving community, right? I think that, that at our best, we are that. And at our best, we are disciplined and accountable while also showing grace and realizing that, that we don't have all the answers and we're not going to fight over non-essentials. I'm going to bust out some, uh, some Bible verses here that, that you know, some, some biblical passages that really inspire me in terms of my understanding of church. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 52, about Jesus talking about bringing out treasures new and old. Uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 19, which is Jesus citing the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 2, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, covering his sight to the blind, liberating the oppressed. You know, that, that, that the social concerns that the church has, that the compassion that the church exudes I do think that the church can sometimes get bogged down in policy details that the elites of the church can, and perhaps we need to be more humble about some things or, or not. The church doesn't need to have a policy stance on everything, mm-hmm. but that disposition toward compassion and, and, and hospitality and, and to err on the side of solidarity with the marginalized and oppressed um, Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 33, about a community of the church that is rooted in the apostles' teaching, but that is also sharing love with one another and materially sharing with one another. Like, what we have is not our own. Everything we have is from God. Romans chapter 14, about giving each other grace, that that we're not going to agree on everything, and that's okay. And then the, the last one I'll cite in this regard is James chapter 1, verse 27, a religion that is pure before God our Father is this, taking care of orphans and widows in their distress and being undefiled from the world. I still believe, even with this split, that the United Methodist Church's best position to, to be that church um, that, 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 that reflects 
the pursuit of God's holiness and the pursuit of God's grace that, that reflects God wanting us to be rooted in the best things that keep us connected to the 2,000-year-old traditions of the church, but also seeing the new things that the Spirit has for us to do. I, th I think that the United Methodist Church is that church. Um, you know, another reason why I choose to stay in the United Methodist Church is that I don't believe we need new church bodies. I don't believe we need new denominations. And, and let me tell you, Dennis, and, and I'll mention this in the next part, my last section a little bit, that from about 2008 to 2017, I was absolutely conservative when it came to LGBTQ concerns. You know, I always believed in, in inclusion. I grew up in San Francisco, um, always believed that people should be included and treated fairly. I was concerned, like a lot of my conservative brothers and sisters, about potential ripple effects or um, slippery slope, that, that biblical interpretations that allowed for LGBTQ full equality would then kind of dismantle biblical authority and would, um, would uh, uh, you know, lead us to ignore all the core doctrines of the church. I was mm -hmm. deeply concerned and, and lead us to ignore the pursuit of holiness, right? And I think that's because a lot of our academics and denominational elites in the mainline, that is true of them. They're mm -hmm. like, well, well, yeah, like, who cares about sexual morality? And I'm like, I don't know. I think God does. Jesus does. Like, 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 sex, like how we conduct ourselves in the privacy of our bedrooms matters to God, right? And, and so, but even back then, even when I held a more conservative view and, and, and thought that I would be headed toward, you know, I thought that the, that the United Methodist Church would remain more conservative and I thought I would remain in that United Methodist Church that was more conservative. I still believed we didn't need new denominations. I wrote a, a guest blog post on a blog called Unsettled Christianity in 2016 mm -hmm. um, about this. I didn't need, think we needed new denominations. I felt like if conservatives needed to go, there were the holiness denominations that I mentioned. There was the Anglican Church in North America. There was there, there you know, folks want to, you know, don't want to be part of a church that ordains women, or um, you know, I do want to be part of such a church. But if folks don't like, they're Baptist and, and other Congregationalists and non-denom. Like, there's all kinds of church traditions that you can be a part of already. We have tens of thousands of denominations in this world. We have ballpark ten thousand denominations. In the United States alone, we don't need another one. I believed that then, and I still believe that. You know, John chapter 17, verse 23, that Jesus desires unity. And I know that that is ironic for a Protestant, and especially me, I grew up Catholic. Uh, you, you know, that's a little ironic for Protestants to say. I don't think that there's never a reason to leave the church you grew up in. Um, but I think we've splintered too much already. I think we need to be more focused on unity. So I feel like if conservatives feel the need to leave, there are plenty of options. And, and I don't understand why they're creating a new denomination. Mm -hmm. um, you know, finally, you know, I, I would say for me, in terms of my growth, I mentioned, and, you know, I, I was more conservative. I, even when I was a, a first-year student at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary, which is, you know, Presbyterian, PCUSA, very progressive leaning. Um, 
In response to a newspaper uh, uh, issue that was entirely devoted to what they called the queer, they, they called it the queer issue, right? Uh, queer inclusivity, LGBTQ inclusivity. And I, I felt like an, an alternative voice was needed. And so I, I ruffled a bunch of feathers by writing an op-ed opposing gay marriage, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and you know, for me, it was always, it was rooted more in Genesis 2 and the understanding of marriage that is found there. Um, and and, and that, that that understanding of marriage is referenced multiple times in the New Testament by Jesus himself even, right? That was kind of always my perspective. And in many ways, I don't have a clean answer. You know, I, I mean, the, the quote clobber verses that are often used, I mean, you take Leviticus, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, et cetera. I think most of those can be explained away with um, that we have a very different understanding of what homosexuality is mm -hmm. than, than most of the people back in those days. You know, in, in, in back, in, back then, uh, that was expressed primarily through um, what we would today call pedophilia right? And it wasn't expressed in covenantal loving monogamous relationship. And so, um, and so the clobber verses can be explained away. I still don't have a clean answer as to Genesis 2, but here's what I do know and, and where I've settled on and, and become more comfortable with, with LGBTQ inclusivity is that we've already deviated. And I say we, I don't just mean the United Methodist Church. I think most of the American church in practice or in text, have already deviated by allowing, I think for good reason, we've allowed divorce and remarriage. Maybe we've erred too much on the side of leniency in that regard, um, but we have, and we've done it for good reason. We've done it because we've seen many cases there are abuse, many cases, there, whether physical abuse, psychological abuse, Many cases, you know, the, the phrase the United Methodist Church uses is a marriage is spiritually dead. Um, we've already deviated from the words of Jesus. The words of Jesus, when Jesus is citing Genesis 2, he's opposing divorce and remarriage. And we've already said, you know what, we need to contextualize that. In some degree, what the Apostle Paul did in 1 Corinthians 7. Apostle Paul says, look, the Lord says, you know, not to get divorced. I say to you, you know, stay married if you can, but if you, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here. If your unbelieving spouse leaves you, you're released, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus didn't say that. Well, Paul felt like contextually that was appropriate. And I think we as the church have already said that contextually because of things we've used our reason to say that divorce and remarriage is appropriate. So I just don't see, and, and, and so to me, what we do when we allow divorce and remarriage, but then we tell our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, um, like you, I don't mean to make this too personal, but like you, when we tell our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, well, you need to stay single. Mm -hmm. These folks can get remarried even though Jesus said no to that, but you need to stay single. I think we create a situation of unequal scales, which the Lord abhors. You see Leviticus chapter 19, verse 36. Leviticus gets quoted a lot about with regard to homosexuality. Well, there's Leviticus chapter 19, verse 36 about 
abhorring unequal scales and valuing equal weights, you know, equity. Luke chapter 11, verse 46, where Jesus condemns the religious authorities who place burdens on others that they're unwilling to bear. And we see the apostle Peter talk about that in Acts chapter 15, verse 10, where he's like, why, you know, when, when they're talking about inclusivity of the Gentiles in the church, which was mind-blowing to those first Christians. Paul said, why are we going to put obstacles on them that we can't bear, right? Uh, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 1 also talks about equal weights and equal measures. And so given what we know, that in the vast majority of situations, I know there are exceptions to this, in the vast majority of situations, sexual identity and sexual orientation, you know, gender identity and sexual orientation are not a choice for the vast majority of people. There are exceptions, it's complicated, but for the vast majority of people, it's not a choice. We know that. And so why would we set an expectation for our LGBTQ brothers and sisters in terms of a legalism that we as straight people are not willing to adhere to? I think that's where I've settled. And so, uh, you know, and, and, and just in general, you know, I think that um, while different contexts are different, I, I, think, I think you could speak to this more than I can. Different parts of the country, LGBTQ uh, individuals and, and communities are received differently and treated differently. They're, 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 they're not all oppressed and marginalized in the same way, depending on where you are in the context. But there's still, I think, both historically and in most parts of the world, um, and most, if not many, many, if not most parts of our country, LGBTQ individuals are still marginalized in many ways. Mm. And, and, you know, Jesus really admonishes the church to be on the side of those who are marginalized and oppressed. Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, whatever you've done for the least of my brothers and sisters, you've done for me. And so... So, actually... Um... So, excuse me, one yeah. moment. I'm kind of curious what brought about a change, your a change in viewpoint um, when it came to um, homosexuality, same-sex relationships. Because you said up, up until 2017, you had I would be considered a more uh, conservative. Yeah. What brought about the change? I think um, a number of things. I think. Um, you know, the, the, uh, I think the, the atmosphere, the social atmosphere, both in the church and in the larger country, mm-hmm. that where I, I, I was under the impression that much of evangelicalism and conservative Christianity was supportive of and and would would advocate for justice and equity for all people and that with respect to lgbtq persons it was a sense of we would lovingly advocate celibacy right um i think around 2015 2016 2017 i i lost that impression that, that you know that that i don't and, and I don't want to impugn any individual person's integrity or character. There's certainly lots of exceptions to this. But my general sense is that conservative Christianity in the United States 
is not receptive to what I think are core elements of biblical ethics when it comes to public justice um, and, and when it comes to equity with respect to racism, when it comes to hospitality with respect to immigrants, when it comes to um, a gender equality, when it comes to uh, those, and, and, and seeing that, and even with respect to LGBTQ persons, I think there was even a backlash to things like revolts, the, 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 the celibate, LGBT celibate movement that, that a lot of conservative Christianity was like, no, you need to even deny that you're gay. Like, we just yeah. want you to pretend, we want to pretend you don't exist. Yeah, a, a while back, I actually interviewed someone that's kind of part of Revoice, yes. um, who was an Anglican um, priest. And yeah, he was telling me that even that, that they're celibate, and it's still like, it's not enough. Yeah. Fascinating. That, that, that to me, like that tells me, that's not an issue of holiness. Mm. That's an issue of prejudice. Yes. And so um, I think the other thing that shifted was seeing a lot more of my LGBTQ affirming and LGBTQ colleagues, friends, et cetera, who are also theological, also theologically and biblically, you know, have a core sense of orthodoxy and, mm -hmm. and, and aren't the, the stereotype of, well, we're just going to like, whatever you want, um, you know, and, and, and anything goes and, and Christianity is just a reflection of the Democratic Party or or even left of the Democratic Party, right? Like that kind of stereotype that that wasn't really true. Mm -hmm. of, of, of That might be true of the, the elites or academics, but that's not true on the ground in your churches in, and in the churches that I serve. That, that folks who are LGBT inclusive, they come to church because they love Jesus. They come to church because they want to know how to be faithful to Jesus. And that for them... LGBTQ equality um, is part of that, and and so I think I think a combination of seeing um, you know seeing voices like yours, even though we've never met in person, uh, but also other colleagues in person, um, and and that that a sense of that that the church does not have to reject all that it means to be Christian to embrace our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. And so um, I think that's really what, and, and it was gradual. I don't know that there was a day that I decided. I think it was gradual, but, but um, yeah. And, and, and so yeah, that's where I'm at in terms of, uh, you know, choosing to remain United Methodist. Now, I mean, I'm a rule follower. So right now the rules are the rules. They are still... Um, private gay marriage, and so for the time being, I'm gonna abide by it because I feel like I, you know, I know that there's a place for civil disobedience, and I feel called to that. You know, and, and uh, call me a coward. I'm I'm just not doing it for now. But uh, you know, I and so I'm still, you know, not intending on like making waves or forcing an agenda on anyone. But I believe in being a part of a church that errs on the side of inclusivity and equity and compassion. Um, and I did want to clarify, too, that as I kind of hinted at, I don't think erring on the side of inclusivity and equity 
and thinking that racism and fighting xenophobia, like fighting racism and fighting xenophobia, mean that we're always going to fall on the same plates in terms of policy or in terms of how we, like, like there are going to be, you know, one of the big fights about um, CRT, you know, Mm -hmm. critical race theory. I think most of that is a panic, to be honest. Um, I think that in some contexts, there there can be legitimate and authentic debate about like, hey, wait a second here. I know even on your, your show, you talked about like, in some contexts, like, are we erring on the side of addressing systemic racism so much that we're disempowering people, right? Mm-hmm. Like we like we need to have these conversations. And like immigration, we're all gonna fall on a different spectrum in terms of balancing security needs with um compassion and hospitality. But again, I believe that Jesus calls us to err on the side instead of finding excuses not to be inclusive or finding excuses to be exclusive. I think Jesus calls us to err on the side of hospitality and generosity and equity um, because of the Bible passages I mentioned and more. Um, And so I want to be a part of a church that embraces that. And so... um, So where do you see the future of the UMC post, you know, several years down the road after this split has has happened do you see it being a stronger church um yeah i i to be honest I, i'd like to say yes i think it can be a stronger church mm-hmm. i think what we what we need to assess you know in in, in business culture they the secular culture they there's the phrase know your why mm-hmm. and i think that for a lot of established churches we lose sense of the why, you know, and, and, you know, the United Methodist church has our, we have our uh, mission statement, make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. I think we can be a stronger church if we dig into that and embrace it. And, and for our, if our congregations find ways to, um, to really put that into practice, making, Making disciples mean going out and evangelizing and, and reaching out to friends and neighbors and, and sharing our testimony and experiences of the risen Jesus Christ. I think, and then being better disciples ourselves. I mentioned about sanctification being an emphasis of the Methodist Church, you know, going on to perfection in the words of John Wesley, seeking to be more like Jesus and the transformation of the world. We're, you know, we're never gonna, the world will never be what it should be until Jesus comes back. But we are absolutely called in our work to bear witness and, and give glimpses and, and to what the kingdom of God is. And, and, to, and to, as the church, to seek to transform our communities in the larger world to better reflect the kingdom of God. And I think if we do that, we can be healthier churches. I think that both United Methodist Churches and Global Methodist Churches, and just like I think mainline and conservative churches everywhere, um, if we get caught up in culture wars, if we get caught up, or, or if we get caught up in 
wrote um, wrote mechanical uh, a ritualism, then, then no, I think we'll we'll die like a lot of you know we'll die like like a, we'll go the way of a lot of uh, other church traditions. But I think there's hope if we really in this process and beyond really go back to uh, uh, the, the vision that Wesley had, go back to how we've expressed our own mission statement in the past and, and really dig in and try to see, to be better disciples, make disciples, and in our discipleship, seek to transform the world for the better. So, All right. Yeah. Well, Joe, that, that's, I'm thankful for this good talk um, and for helping people understand what's going on in the UMC and also maybe a, a hopeful future. And I think sometimes yes. we need to hear that, especially within mainline Protestantism. Yes. I, I, you know, yeah. I know you've covered that a lot, and I, I definitely appreciate that, that, that the emphasis that you're bringing and that your guests are bringing in terms of um, how mainline Protestantism can can be a you know we we shouldn't just accept decline as inevitable, mm-hmm. and we all are probably going to have to change. We might even end up seeing some mergers or partnerships, um, you know. But I, I absolutely am appreciative of your vision of hope for mainline Protestantism and 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 the sense that inclusivity and equity and justice are are not just, they're not add-ons that we are trying to impose on the gospel. They are fruit that comes from our understanding and reading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I definitely appreciate all you do in that regard. Great. Thank you. Yes, thank you. It was great to talk to you again. And I'm definitely going, we will have you back on soon to talk about another topic. All right. All right. Okay. Thank you so much, Dennis. God bless you. You're welcome. Take care. for listening, for taking the time to hearing um, what I think was a really good interview with Joe. Um, and as I said at the end of our interview, that I hope to talk to him again. He is always, uh, I think uh, I had him on a few, basically almost a year ago to talk a little bit about um, kind of life as a pastor during uh, COVID, especially during the lockdown of you know, again, from the um, perspective of a parish pastor. Um, And I think that sometimes that we need to have those viewpoints. I hope to have more um, because a lot of these issues that we talk about um, and usually have some start, you know, 
in a local church. And sometimes we look at all these issues and um, we're looking at them from a, a you know, 35,000 foot viewpoint and um, talking with pastors like Joe um, allows us to see uh, this um, issue on the ground um, as it's happening. So um, I do again want to thank Joe for taking the time to uh, chat with me and uh, thank you for listening. Um, And if you liked what you heard, um, I hope that you would consider supporting the podcast by making a donation. There is a link um, in the uh, show description where you can leave a tip of um, whatever amount you would like. Um, You can also go on to our website at enroodpodcast.org backslash donate to make a donation there as well. Well, that is it for this episode of Enroute, uh, the podcast where we are that is at the intersection of church and Maine. Uh, I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Take care, Godspeed, and we will see you very soon. Thank you.